0: Welcome to today's episode of our two-part podcast series on the role of locally-led adaptation in building resilience among the pastoralists in East Africa. I'm your host, Pranav Singh, a climate change expert at MSE. Today we have with us not one, but two brilliant speakers who have worked extensively with the pastoralist communities at the intersection of climate change and livelihoods. Our first guest is Tahira Muhammad. Tahira is an interdisciplinary social scientist with over eight years of experience in pastoralist livelihood change, resilience, and development, especially among the cross-border Borana communities in Northern Kenya and Southern Ethiopia. Tahira is based at the International Livestock Research Institute in Kenya, studying the linkages between long-term resilience programs and short-term humanitarian support among the pastoralist communities of the Horn of Africa. Joining Tahira is Wendy Chamberlain. Wendy is a development professional with over 17 years of experience in sub-Saharan Africa, focusing on technology, financial inclusion, and agriculture. She has been working towards strengthening climate resilience through locally-led measures, focusing on the pastoralist communities.
1: Thanks, Pranav. It's great to be here. Thank you, Pranav, for having us today.
0: Wonderful. I look forward to our conversation today. Let's get started with the part one of this uh, two-part episode. So increasingly, we have been listening, uh, we've been coming across uh, an increased focus on locally-led adaptation as opposed to the top-down approaches. We have also been hearing about the increased focus on adaptation and resilience as opposed to simply mitigation. What I wanted to understand, and given your experience of working uh, with the past lists, Taira. Is what are the specific challenges that climate change poses for pastoralists in East Africa, uh, especially in regards to their livelihoods, food security, and access to water, and how are these challenges particularly troublesome for the women pastoralists?
2: Uh, thank you very much, Pranav. Uh, first for having us uh, for in this process and uh, for this question. Um, pastoralists, uh, as regard to climate change, they face um significant challenges, which is interlinked and some of them cascading. So number one is the changing weather pattern, which results in prolonged drought, uh, sometimes two, three years apart, and also sometimes leading to flash floods. And uh, this all bring back uh, different forms of animal diseases. So it's a combination of all these factors that, inf- that affect pastoralist livelihood in this part of the world. And since livestock is the primary source of livelihood for these dryland communities in East Africa, loss of livestock to this event undermines family survival. That means food security is decreased, children are, mal- children are malnourished and people lose their livelihood. And most significantly, the loss is so severe, severe on women, especially as they try to balance their care role with livestock production under these extreme events. For example, in this recent droughts. Uh, Women were migrating to different places, sometimes crossing to different counties, and this meant abandoning their their houseware. I mean, house how care role and their families, and sometimes staying out for long, so undermining their food the food security for their family. In addition, uh, some women, especially in peri-urban pastoral areas, uh, they engage in livestock livestock trade. So if they lose their livestock, that means they lose their livelihood, which also come back affecting their 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 survival. So, in a nutshell, these are the few challenges that pri- climate change uh, uh, influences the life of pastoralists, especially women in this region.
0: I see. Thanks for that, Taira. I think I can understand and I can appreciate the importance of uh, livestock and the livelihoods, how deeply ingrained and how pervasive it is on their livelihoods and their general lifestyle. How a shock that affects that source of income uh, can have cascading effects on the other facets of life. So, Wendy, to you, when we talk about these, uh, the importance of protecting the vulnerable communities uh, the pastoralists against these shocks, of climate, climate shocks and so on, what is the uh, locally led approach that we've been hearing uh, gaining so much attraction and what is its importance towards building climate adaptation and resilience?
1: Thanks, Pranav. Um, you know, when we talk about the locally-led approach and when we talk about locally-led adaptation, we're not necessarily referring to one, shall we say, standard di- standardized development approach, but what, we, what we, we are referring to is more a recognition that often there are longstanding forms of community resilience and adaptation that are, are in place and that they may likely demonstrate greater support for community resilience. And this doesn't mean that outside development interventions are wrong or bad, but often we in the development sector overlook local solutions and potentially even at worst diminish them as being too small to scale. And yet localized insights address some of the very challenges that climate risks presents. Um, And the reason that this matters is because risk exposure to climate shocks and stresses is very contextual, Um, and solutions need to be based on context and individual and community priorities to ensure that there's uptake and sustainability over time. There are some examples of what this looks like in northern Kenya, but I'll underscore that these are again, contextualized in the Northern Kenyan context. And so when we talk about solution, locally led solutions outside of Northern Kenya, they make look a little bit different. But one example is looking at what the Ingalai Community Conservancy does through multidimensional and holistic conversations facilitated through the Legato Initiative. Um, This conservancy's grazing coordinator has seen the potential for more integrated grazing plan management through using traditional relationships between mothers and sons when they are morons as a way of working around specific types of relationships in the community. In other conservancies around the Samburu region, communities have worked with organizations like Rebbe Zebras Trust to increase female stewardship of grass banks and establishment of circular berms to catch rainfall and to support grass growing in these areas. So these are just two examples, but again, the point being for local adaptation to really be prioritized is to first recognize that there are perhaps, and that we know there are based on evidence, long standing community led efforts already in place that we should pay attention to.
0: Interesting. Wendy just spoke about the importance of context in how we approach and design a program. Tara, how, in your experience, how do you think the locally led approach empowers the local communities to identify and and the adaptation solutions uh, that are tailored to their specific needs and priorities.
2: Uh, thank you very much, uh, Wendy, for the elaborate point and thanks, Pranav. Um, uh, first and foremost, uh, we need to understand that pastoralists, for them to survive the impact of changing climatic event, they first need to respond to that particular uh, shock or stress and also they need time to recover and later on to be resilient. So for them to, uh, to to go through these three processes, um, they often need local capacities. And sometimes uh, the external intervention, uh, like they come maybe during the, the shock time, like when the shock is happening, or some of them help in in recovering, like the loss that the pastoralists have undergone. And later on, the long-term development programs help in building resilience. So what uh, what, what you need to understand is what already, already exists on the ground. In our recent study on building resilience from below, we highlighted the concept called high reliability professionals, and we applied that concept from the critical infrastructure like uh, uh, water system, uh, electricity system. This critical infrastructure have very highly reliable professionals, and past all this, because they also work in critical, uh, infra- critical uh, production, because they need to provide. Uh, goods uh, in variable environmental condition. they need to have these professionals. And these professionals are many people working together, it's not one person. So for example, the hard owner works with the hiriders who are hired or sometimes who are partnered with. They also need to work with the veterinary people, they need to work with, with the government officials to provide veterinary services. So all this network of people ensure that they can respond to this crisis and enhance uh, resilience. So. The role of locally led adaptation is recognizing this institution and how we can support them than just like focusing on, you know, like bombarding them with, uh, with with you know, development aid. But we need to recognize the existence of this locally existing capacities network and make sure that it is supported. And it is this network that ensures reliable uh, production because these people are there throughout time and also space. So if the institutions are recognized and supported, then uh, I think that will, will enhance the, the value for the local led adaptation.
0: Thank you, Tara. I have a follow up on that response. So given your extensive experience of working in the Northern Kenya region, can you share some examples of um, successfully locally led adaptation projects that have been implemented among the past communities either in the Northern Kenya region or East Africa in general?
2: Uh, like I'll give one example, uh, the one which was funded by DFID, uh former DFID, uh it's, in, it's implemented in Isiolo County, whereby among the Borano communities, there exists a system of rangeland governance. These people use the rangeland for different seasons. For example, when it is dry, there are particular grazing area, and when it is uh, rainy season, they move to particular uh, areas. So uh, through this program uh, implemented by a local NGO called RAP resource advocacy uh, program, these communities, the institution was strengthened through capacities such as uh, building them boreholes, I mean, getting them boreholes and also uh, making sure that they manage this rangeland according to their traditionally, I mean, customary ways of uh, governing the rangeland. This was super useful because people were able to follow this, uh, uh, this uh, governance and also respond to different drought season And in addition, also, resources are managed accordingly because when people use hole, they need fuel to to pump the water. And also they need people who who ration the water because they need to water their animals according to, I mean, different days, because especially in dry season, the number of animals is is a lot, so they need to ration. So this system of governance, if it is supported with different uh, capacities, then they are able to respond accordingly and manage their resources successfully to ensure that people survive through this crisis.
0: When did you have anything to add to this as an example that you find particularly interesting?
1: Sure. I would say that there's this tension in how we are using the word locally led and what it really means. And I think Tahir has given some really important examples that are truly community led. We do have really great work being done by NGOs who are working in pastoralist areas and they are increasingly focusing on locally led solutions but there is a a line to walk again between what is truly community priority versus outside intervention. And so we see some good examples like I mentioned uh, within some communities that are part of conservancy models such as Niaminyak Conservancy near Wamba, Um, and I already mentioned in as well. And we see some examples of NGOs that are really working to try and ensure that their adaptive solutions are relevant to local communities that they are partnering with. And I'll leave it at that because I think Tahira may want to add something more and go for it, Tahira. Uh, Yeah,
2: thank you very much one example like for example for pastoralists to respond to this climate event one one significant thing to is to to have knowledge about what is going to happen or where to move how to move what resources they need for enhancing that movement so recently the national drought uh, management authority ndma which is an organization a national organization working in pastoral areas uh, together with local ngo i give an example from moyale where i come from this local organization called SIFA, um, they were working with uh, traditional forecasters predicting like whether the drought is going to happen. So like NDMA predicted that the drought is going to come. That was the short train in, in long range in April. And they worked with these communities to predict. And this is really, really important because the communities were able to work with these national agencies and that knowledge was uh, shared and the communities planned accordingly for how they are going to move, when and where to move. So. This is an example that I can add to. Thank you.
1: I just want to add in, if I may, Pranav, this is such an important example that is often missed from development design interventions. And it's a perfect example of why those interventions, when designed, need to ensure they have community participation at the word go because of the import of this type of insight that can really have an impact on the type of program design that is put into place.
0: Well, I really, I really love this uh, building up on each other. I think uh, there are a lot of questions when we talk about locally led adaptation involving the community uh, from the get-go. Keep Instead of uh, treating them as passive beneficiaries, for them to actually have the agency to be involved in the decision that and, and the deliverables that affect them the most. I think uh, we have also heard about, a lot about challenges uh, in terms of uh, scaling up issues, the capacity itself, which I think to some extent discounts the value of Indigenous knowledge that has already existed for uh, eons now. So this uh, hearing, hearing from people who have actually worked so closely with them, who are passionate about this topic, I think this is really, really insightful. Thank you, Thayran and Wendy, for highlighting the disproportionate impact of climate on past lists, especially women, and the importance of adopting a locally led adaptation approach. This concludes the first part of the podcast. In the second episode, we'll continue our conversation with these two great speakers and learn about the role of Indigenous knowledge, financial services, and local governments in driving local climate adaptation. Thank you for listening in. If you want to learn more about this topic, and MSEs who work in this area, please visit our website, www.microsave.net and follow us on our social media handles on LinkedIn, X and Facebook. Until next time, this is your host Pranav signing off.